and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today I'm absolutely thrilled to bring you my conversation with Alexis Ohanian, founder of Stage Agnostic Firm 776, which was founded in 2020, and today has over $750 million in assets under management. I was so looking forward to recording this episode as Alexis has a really unique view on the venture ecosystem and is truly one of the most independent thinkers in the space. Before starting 776, Alexis was the founder of Reddit and then later co-founded the highly successful Initialized Capital. We covered so many interesting topics during the show, so let's get right into it. If you're investing in private companies, then you need to know about Sidecar, the latest player in venture tech. Sidecar is on a mission to enable anybody to be a capital allocator by creating tools built specifically for today's venture investor. Their powerful software removes the headache of organizing private investments so that you can focus on making deals, not spreadsheets. Whether you're syndicating your first or 50th deal, Sidecar X is your silent operating partner, handling all back office functions in a single place. Sidecar always has your back so that you never have to worry about chasing subdocs, lost wires, or late K1s. In the spring of 2021, as private market activity continued, we launched Allocate, and Sidecar was an instrumental part of our success. Their products supported our fundraise in a way that delighted my investors and kept me apprised in real time throughout the process. Their platform allowed Allocate to close our seed round efficiently and effectively, so we could get back to our mission of increasing access to top private alternatives. Visit Sidecar.io to learn more and join the waitlist for their limited beta. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily, so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast, with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. Alexis, it's good to see you and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Samir. So I was doing my research before recording this show and I was looking at your LinkedIn and I went all the way to the beginning. And typically when I look at somebody's LinkedIn, the first job is something out of college, you know, working at a company or as an investor or something that's pretty traditional. In your case, I found Pizza Hut and you working as a parking garage attendant, which uh, of course is unique in so many ways to list those type of things on your on your LinkedIn and for me, it actually resonated because I, in my early years, I worked at a subway and then I was selling vacuum cleaners at a Sears Roebuck. And the non-obvious thing for me, at least in my career, is those were kind of formative experiences for me in terms of how I learned client service and just thought about business in the early days. Tell us a little bit about how those times as working at a Pizza Hut were so formative to you. I mean, I think you see, I mean. You kind of said it perfectly in a lot of ways. Those those are the experiences. I think those are formative experiences where one can learn things uh, you just don't find in a classroom that I know helped me do my job better as a CEO and and now as an investor. And and you left off some of my favorites too. There was also my the first gig was CompUSA sales guy, 
And that got me over public speaking because I had to, I wasn't just selling on the floor. I was also doing demos every 30 minutes, but I was 14 going through puberty, voice cracking on a microphone, speaking to anyone who would hear me to demo like software or peripherals be like, oh, here's a, a mouse from Logitech. Uh, it's, it's 1999. It's, it's great. Uh, and, and you only learn public speaking through repetition, through practice. And here was a job where I was just forced to embarrass myself, like literally the worst public speaking experience ever, every 30 minutes, because no one wants to hear some pimply kid talk about mice and software. So I just get ignored, but you had to keep talking. So I, I got really good at talking to no one, to a bunch of people who would just pass by and ignore me. And that was mortifying, but really formative. Obviously being in food service, uh, you know, teaches you a lot about the best and worst out of people, teaches you how to, how to deal with difficult situations when you know, your entire pay rests on a tip, you know, all the money you're taking home comes down to how you make someone feel. And at the end of the day, that's what customer experience is. That's what I think a big part of what a CEO has to inject into a company. And frankly, as an investor, I think you know, working with founders is one thing. Doing great work for founders is another thing. But even more important than that is making them feel like you did great work, showing them the receipts of that great work and giving them a great experience. You learn that waiting tables. Uh, um, and uh, the parking booth one, I really didn't learn anything. That one, I was just getting paid to read books. Actually, no, what it taught me was that automation was inevitable for, for jobs like that because there was just no human part of the work that needed me there. And, and maybe I could stretch that and say that's informed me to build our operating system, Cerebro. Uh, at 776 to maximize the human work so that we don't do the mindless work that software can do better, cheaper, faster. We know we've talked about this. I mean, this industry, uh, there's this stat and it's a pretty big sample size, like 40% of all VCs went to Harvard or Stanford. Um, there is, this is an industry that is historically pretty narrow, uh, the lens through which, uh, and you know, it's overwhelmingly male and, and also pretty darn white. And, and you look at this and you just think, okay, well, as an asset class, its ventures performed phenomenally well. And then I look at that and I think, well, gosh, it managed to perform that well in spite of the fact that the people allocating capital had a pretty limited set of backgrounds and experiences and thus networks and thus, you know, intuition. So how much better could it have done? Or more importantly, how much better can we do going forward? Because we're just, you know, the industry is evolving like every industry very quickly. And, and so I do hope, I, I, I want... And, and look, and I also know too, um, you know, I'm in a position now as a dad of a four-year-old who's got a lot more privilege than my wife or I ever could have imagined. And, and then trying to instill similar values and similar work ethic. And I've got her doing chores already for the dogs, like little things to try to exercise those muscles. I want her to be working at a Pinkberry or what, I don't know what the equivalent is. And I don't know if Pinkberry is still around. It's just fun to say. But uh, we can go a lot of ways. But I, I really do think that stuff matters, especially during those formative years. And uh, I'm grateful for them. So yeah, I put them on my LinkedIn. As you were talking, it's it's very similar to how I viewed the world. And in these little elements and these experiences really just create that early DNA. In your case, it was around client centrality or customer centrality, client service, which actually, while it's very obvious, oftentimes is this lost art for a lot of people that are running companies. EQ is so underrated 
And, and I'd argue now in a world where we have even more flexible and remote work, it's going to be even more important to understand and have a kind of emotional intelligence because you're going to have, as a species, we're used to doing this sort of emotional dance, you know, in person. It's harder to do it offline. And so great company leaders, as well as investors, company builders, are, are I think, going to be at even more of an advantage if they have this skill and they have this experience and they, they just the best way to get it is through experience and, and doing those jobs. It, it gives it to you quick because you're at the mercy yeah. of, uh, of some people usually at their worst. Especially right now when many people that join companies never see their coworkers, it's not the same thing. And you have to have these intentional, you know, often 2d conversations over zoom or in, in this case, we're on Riverside, <laughs> Great you know, having this conversation and being able to connect with people. <laughs> So I, I want to maybe dig into a few things. So, okay, you've been an investor now. Yeah, you were a founder first. You've been an investor now for well over a decade. And as you pointed out, the, the world of venture has historically been very homogeneous. Same backgrounds, socioeconomic, gender, things like that. What have you seen change the most in, let's call it your 12 years running a venture firm? And then ultimately, what are the main observations that you saw that really led to the starting of 776? When we founded Initialized, Gary and Harge and I were just, we were partners at Y Combinator who were <laughs> approached by someone at Demo Day who said, hey, you're pretty good at this angel investing thing because all the, all the YC partners would angel invest. You should do more of it. And we were the least sort of uh, just wealthy uh, at that point, there were other YC partners who had a lot more money. So they were writing much bigger angel checks than we could. So we thought, okay, we could supplement our investing with other people's money. That's a thing. And he said, yeah, I think we can put together that. That's what started Fund One, it was a $7 million fund. The thing that we inadvertently stepped into was the start of a sea change that took, you know, a decade or so, where investors could show up and get their way onto a cap table, into a hot deal by virtue of like what they have done and what they can do to help. And, and maybe this was an extension of YC, which obviously, you know, I was lucky to be a founder or founder, excuse me, a founder in the first YC batch in 05. YC really democratized a lot of the access to just sort of break in. But then you started seeing folks, obviously Chris Saka did this very well. He was a huge inspiration. You know, for me, nearly bought Reddit actually in 2006 when he was still at Google. And then when he started lowercase was used inspiration. Um, our first fund has done pretty well, uh, still not as well as Saka's. I'll tell me 55X ain't bad, but I think Saka's is triple digits at this point. It's, it's magical. But all that said, you know, you started to see this change. And I think it's for no other reason other than you had founders who had made a little coin building in the sort of modern web two era. And so what they were bringing with experience in addition to capital rather was experience of like, yeah, here's, you know, when I was designing the karma system or the scoring system on Reddit, here was the thought process, here were the why and, and what have you. And, and that started snowballing that kept growing and growing. And now you sort of take it for granted. Now it's the, you know, the, the value add me C VC is a meme, uh, obviously a sarcastic one. And, you know, I also, during that time, let's see, 2014, I came back to Reddit as executive chairman. And I was there full time for about three years, four years, um, helping lead the turnaround. Uh, a couple of the women who I'd hired 
early there, Caitlin Holloway, Lizzie Garvin ended up continuing to work with me beyond that. But like that was going from a company that I'd founded left for four years post the sale and then come back to, um, basically frozen in time. That experience of those four years was going from like less than 10 million in revenue, public number, despite being 10 years old, and despite having millions and millions of users, anemic business, company sort of culture and everything in disarray to, I think when Caitlin left, it was a $6 billion company. And obviously now on deck for an IPO. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But, but it was a hell of a ride and learned a ton, right? Going from like 40 or 50 employees to 500. Uh, in, a, in about three, three and a half years. And that taught me, that actually taught me how to build and scale a company. The The first five years of Reddit were like, okay, here's how to create something from zero to one, catch lightning in a bottle and, and grow. Um, but I made so many mistakes as a first time CEO. And then coming back as exec chairman, got to learn a ton from folks like Caitlin in particular about what it takes to grow a high performance org with purpose, with values. And, and you know, when I, Came back to investing and then ultimately came back to investing full time and then ultimately decided to start 776. What I realized was what I needed to start now was actually a technology company that deployed venture capital. And I'm a product designer. I have been, I mean, my first product was terribly designed. It was Reddit, but it worked out. And and I love designing product. I, especially community product. And at the end of the day, we're in a business that even though for decade plus we've talked about every industry getting disrupted by software venture continues to be an industry remarkably not disrupted by software and and so i look at this as oh my god this is unfair like i'm a product builder i'm a pretty good capital allocator let's build a tech startup let's 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 hire the way a tech startup hires let's let's develop let's bring transparency to the process the way a startup does Let's do some things that are actually considered pretty radical by venture, but very mundane, like open job recs for our operating partner position. Like, obviously, that's how you the only way you build a multi-billion dollar business <laughs> is you hire openly and try to get the best and the brightest and have the most intentional, best process you can. That's actually a pretty unique thing in venture. And I'm sitting there with Caitlin looking at her and I'm like, why the hell is it this? Why is it this way? I mean, it explains why the industry is homogenous as it is, because a bunch of Stanford guys are hiring their frat brothers. But that's not a way to get to excellence. That's if you're starting a startup and you know you're 10, 15, 20 employees in and they're all still the CEO's friends, like run. Because <laughs> there's no way that startup is a high performance organization. Statistically, there's no way. And so that advantage has meant um, I think in the you know, our first year, uh, we've we've been able to hit the ground running and provide something founders really, really appreciate. I think start to shift um hopefully start to shift the mindset around what a venture firm really could or should look like one thing that is really interesting sort of if you do a, a look back in the history of venture i mean venture has been around 60 plus years at this point and you, you could even trace it even beyond that but it really didn't change much for most of that history and then you know around 2008 actually you know i'd even go beyond that and say yc and then andrew Reeson, creating more of this agency model, and then the institutional institutionalization of seed. And you guys were part of that initialized, Chris Saka. Of course, that helps having Uber and Twitter in your fund to get that type of return. But, you know, the last 15 years, we've seen a lot of things change in venture. 
you know, more democratization as it relates to the number of people that are investing in companies, right? Oh, today, there's over 3,000 active VC firms that you know, range in size from a million bucks all the way to several hundred billion now in AUM. When you look at the tigers, you know, of the world, and you see a lot of special specialists, right? So you're seeing this fragmentation. But you're right that we haven't seen much shift as how venture is actually done. You know, it's still a very heuristic model of how decisions are made, how value it is ascribed to what a venture capitalist does. And I think that we look at sort of this next generation ahead of us, and you brought up technology as one of those things that really provides some level of a comparative edge. Let's unpack that a little bit. I want to understand how you think about technology within the scope of a venture firm. I approach this like a product manager, and I, I listed out all the things that I knew from talking to billion-dollar CEOs funded early. Like, what were the things over those years that were most valuable? And started with that list. And then I re-ranked that list based on what was the most productizable. And so the first thing that came up in terms of providing value for founders that was pretty, pretty powerful and unique and most productizable was network. These founders said, look, Alexis, you can open us doors to anyone across any industry. And even if you don't know the people, you find them out and they return your call. And that's really valuable for recruiting, for sales, for fundraising. I thought, okay, that's easy. Like I already have kept a personal CRM for my entire career. I can aggressively scrape LinkedIn for the rest. Boom, we have over 40,000 contacts that you can now search in real time on Cerebo. That's an easy V1. Then it's like, okay, well then how do we semi-automate the process so that not only do you not have to ask like, hey, do you know someone at Twitter you can introduce us to? You could literally run that search at two in the morning and then click a button and one click, get an intro and have that live kind of like superhuman on top of our Gmail. So now I'm doing work. I've received this intro request. I can click a button to send the email and I'm still all in Cerebro. And more importantly, all that data stays in our system. Because what do we learn? We learn from the founder running the search, what is a high value company or person because they searched for it. And, and on the back end, we can give them, we have two different types of points. We have clout and affinity, kind of like Karma Score. The clout score helps us understand like how, how interested are people in this entity. Now, you get a certain number of points just for being searched for. You get more points if you actually request an intro to that person. Because now you know, like, okay, they really, like, there's a high utility to make an intro request. Boom, click. Then based on the intro request, we learned some other things. We know how long it takes the person to respond to the opt-in of, like, hey, do you want an intro to Samir? Uh, or more likely, a founder who's like, hey, I'd love an intro to Samir. So how long does it take Samir to respond to that request? And every day that it takes until, like, Ghost you sort of lose affinity points. It's not, it's not like you get negative points, but if, you, if, if folks respond within six hours, you get a lot of affinity points for that. Now, I know I sound ridiculous talking about this, but I sounded just as ridiculous in 2005 when I was explaining this thing called karma points would motivate people all over the world to submit links to impress strangers. And if they were good, they'd get voted up and they'd get points. And if they were bad, they'd vote down. And that leaderboard really powered Reddit for really the first like three or four years. That was the incentive for people. So we're experimenting. We're going to tweak this. I'm sure we're going to realize that we, one thing we thought was really high signal is actually really low signal, but we want all that data to stay in one place because if we're in a business where we know one of the most valuable things we can do for founders is based on our network, why aren't we optimizing that? No human should be thinking 
or remembering because it's a terrible use of our brains. And so now where the rubber meets the road is, you know, we get to these situations where founders deciding between a couple of term sheets, you know, it's us and maybe one or two other top tier firms. And, you know, the question comes up, hey, so why should I take 776's money? I'm asking everyone, you know, I never want to give the pitch again. I've, I've decided I'm never going to give the pitch again because that pitch sounds like everyone else's pitch, right? What is it? Oh, we're really value-add. We're operators. Maybe they can't say they started Reddit, but they could say, oh, yeah, we started these great companies and, and we're going to provide all this value. We're going to make interest, help you close candidates, blah, 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 blah. They all sound the same to a founder. And so instead, I just share my screen. And I share my screen and I say, okay, who do you want to talk to? Let's just run the search right now to see what company you're interested in, right? And, and run that network search live. And so they see the results. They can see what's up. Even here, because all of this lives in software. Now, this is a newer feature. Um, this is maybe four months old, which is why these numbers are still so small. But this is the answer to what the hell do you do? And, and the, the idea here is software can bring transparency, not just knowledge sharing, but also transparency and accountability. And you learn from startups and from high performance businesses that, that high performance individuals want accountability. They crave feedback and accountability. And so you create an environment where it's all, all there. And we, we connect these dots. We actually automatically email every founder at the end of every quarter, we just did this for the first time at the start of this year, a recap of what the hell we did for them. And so when I'm talking to a founder who's deciding between us and another top firm, you know, I can run the search from the network, but I can also just say like, I'm not gonna tell you like, we'll do a bunch of employee closing calls. I'm gonna say we've done 39 of them in the last few months. Um, I want you to know we've made 100, 221 intros. Like this is literally the receipts of the work. And it's just a byproduct of us doing our jobs every day in Cerebro. And now that we're pushing these out every quarter, right? CEOs are starting to tweet them. It's just, it's been like literally two so far. But my hope is we keep earning that and we keep building this flywheel of accountability. Not only are we able to do things for founders that other folks can't do, we bring the receipts. And that matters just as much, right? How they feel matters just as much. And so when a CEO tweets this out, other CEOs are looking at that going, Wait, 776 has so much confidence and conviction and pride in the work they do, they actually hold themselves that accountable to their founders. Again, from a product standpoint, this is table stakes. This is, this, is, this is the exhaust fumes of our engine. And yet, if it becomes the cultural expectation, you have a ton of EAs at other VC firms scrambling to the calendar to try to justify what the hell a partner does with their time. And that's where I want to live. That's where if we're not doing things, this firm is still a year old. I'm still not proud of any of this stuff. We have so much more to do. But if we're not doing stuff that makes the best founders feel like it's an intelligence test, like, oh, obviously I'm going to like, you're, I mean, we take ourselves seriously and trying to build a multi-billion dollar business. We hold ourselves accountable to metrics and standards and transparency. Why shouldn't everyone in the process? That is riding on the bigger trend of it's sort of what, what in, in a way led to how we thought about Titans too, but where I think the future of venture is going, which is, and I, I was bummed this didn't make it into the article. I said, look, you can't, in the past, the Avengers was the brand of the firm. And in the past, you could get by just saying, hey, look, don't worry, the Avengers are going to be here anytime you need help. You got the Avengers. 
But the reality is, if you got Thanos in your backyard and you call the Avengers and what you get is Hawkeye, you're going to be disappointed. I'm sorry. What the, what the hell can Hawkeye do to help against Thanos? He can't do anything. He has a bow and arrow, right? Nothing. What you want is Thor. What you want is Captain America. And what that really means is these cap tables are getting more and more democratized because, yes, more and more people are investing. There are more and more funds. Fine. But the best founders realize I can assemble my own team. I don't need, I don't need you to tell me who the Avengers are because I know there might be days when I need Thor and you're sending me Hawkeye. I'm building the super team of superheroes that I want, that I need. And why the hell not? Who are we as, as capital allocators to be like, no, I don't think that's what you want to do. Like, no, it's happening. And then, so here's the ripple effect of that. Now it forces everyone to justify what the hell it is they're about, why they deserve that right to be on the cap table. And culturally, party rounds, I mean, there's literally an app called Party Round. Party rounds are now a part of the norm, certainly in Web3, right? This is going to do some interesting things for ownership targets for, I think, a lot of VC funds that, again, don't, you know, they might send you Hawkeye. When you know you can curate exactly, exactly the squad you want, and every one of them is so appreciative because relative to their fund, right, it, that's real money. That's real ownership. They're going to they're gonna pick up the phone. They're going to help. In a world of Washington Capital where the best companies, even right now, still have no trouble fundraising. And then the, the cultural ethos of Web3, which isn't everything. We still love space tech. We love food tech. We still do SaaS stuff like, you know, Riverside. But there is so much energy towards these more collaborative rounds. And it's better for founders. You're not winding that back. And so our responsibility is how do we then continue to fight even harder to justify our ownership? Because we lead rounds. And, and so we know that makes the bar much higher, but I'm not trying to fight the ocean. I'm not trying to throw, throw blows at it. I'm trying to build a boat and ride that wave as well as we can. I know it's still early, but I'm curious if there was anything in looking at the data from the platform that's helped you identify the major areas that really move the needle for founders. And maybe even if you could specify the things that might be a little bit non-obvious. So yes, now I'm going to caveat this by saying, look, it's been a year. I don't feel that great about the amount of data we have to draw big, big conclusions. We will, but, but for now, actually the most valuable insights we've gotten, Christina, who just actually just got promoted into, she's our founder outcomes partner, obsessed with customer design, customer experience. She did like a decade at Typeform. Um, so her mind is very much around this sort of design experience. And she's done a great job, just old school serving founders, talking to prospective founders, all of this. And the thing that they valued the most was a feeling of, um, I can call it like the bat signal effect, where when they need help, it shows up and it's good. Again, right? You can flash the bat signal or the Avengers signal. There's no Avengers signal, but right. And, and it's not Hawkeye who shows up. And it's the combination of showing up quickly and showing up correct. I'm really picking on Hawkeye. My partner, Caitlin, is a huge Hawkeye fan. And so she was, she told me she was going to call me out on Twitter, but was like a little anxious about it. And I was like, please, anytime you want to call me out on Twitter, do it, especially if it's about Marvel, because I'll throw down. But you're going to have these experiences where you need to be able to show up and again, keep the founders feeling good. The, the second thing that really surprised me was simply promotion on social media. And so this is something we're leaning into more this year so we can do a better job of it. I, I've obviously got a pretty big social following, but we need to double down on the following of 
the firm, the following of the team, create more content, create it more consistently. Like that is, and, and again, it's in and, and the, the, the ROI on that is obscene. Like it takes seconds to push out a tweet. And then again, remember we create the accountability feedback loop. So one of the things we're going to be shipping will then automatically summarize all of the, uh, to start just Twitter activity and engagement around tweets where we tagged company or founder names. So you get a nice summary on Friday evening, which is like, oh, hey, the 776 team, right? The brand individuals tweeted about you four times. Here's the engagement. Here's the reach. Again, this is table stakes. I'm not even proud of this stuff. This is just basic, right? But it starts to recreate this feedback loop where it's like, all right, they do, they say they're going to do this thing. They do this thing and it's valuable. And then it gets me thinking like, okay, well, there's more, there's certainly more that we can do here for our founders. And when you consider this, uh, this Opal camera, <laughs> so the, the founders put together a beautiful photo of it on my desk and some copy. And I tweeted it out. This thing got millions and millions of impressions, got them tens of thousands of signups, had, I don't know if I could say really well-known CEOs reaching out, looking for pre-orders because it was a cryptic, perfectly crafted, the team crafted the tweet. I just put it out there and they used my platform. And masterfully launched the product before even the launch. Got so many pre-orders. Series A is not announced yet. But, uh, who knows when this is coming out? And anyway, we basically raised a round for them. One tweet. And, and I looked at that and I just thought, like, we're leaving opportunities on the table. Because in this world, you know, even though we are going to come back to a work office type situation, careers are being made on Twitter right? Careers are, are uh, there is so much attention, especially in the tech community around this, that for a company, especially a consumer tech company, like the value of, of doubling down on that is, is massive. So I want to get better at that, both creating the content, measuring, and then reporting back uh, to our founders, which will be a big focus that I did, did not expect because uh, a tweet feels so low effort, but uh, really drives returns for the, for the right companies. And then even for the less obvious ones, recruiting is where the tweets help. You know, several times through this discussion that we've been having, I have forgotten that I'm talking to a VC because you come off very much like a founder. And in fact, in the 12 years I've worked within the emerging manager industry, I remember thinking that emerging managers are effectively like normal companies where you have to build brand, you have to fundraise, maybe you're writing checks versus code. And in your case, you're doing both. But there are so many things that go beyond just investing in making a firm successful. And I'm curious, from your lens, I know it's only been a year, what are some of the things that you really focus on and you've either found challenging or most critical to get right? So you're not going to like this answer, but as, as hard as we've pushed in our first year, uh, when going through what we went through at Reddit, I mean, Google read it circa 2014, like Google, the news articles, revenge porn. I mean, awful, awful stuff. Turning that around with these two women was way harder. The, the folks we, we caught up, I just caught up with a few of the early Reddit folks in the business and sell side who I worked with very closely for those years at South by. And I, I had to hand it to them. I mean, the, no one should have, no one in their right mind should have wanted a job there. Okay. And they went in, they dug deep and built something spectacular, right? That's on its way to going public. So we kind of looked at that experience and now building this where, I mean, we had 1200 applicants for our operating partner position last year. The firm was only a few months old <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, this is very different. And so I, 
I really count my blessings because I, I just know we've already had the experience in the trenches where it was a lot harder. And, and I do rely tremendously on those two, um, as well as our broader team now that we've hired it. But, uh, but, but to think about the operational side, to think about even to not even have to think about recruiting and, and, and building culture and doing that work outside of like, when I have to, like, we're talking about values or we're talking about org design to know that the, the woman running, it's like, she could do this in her sleep. Feels great. And right now, that's the biggest thing. A year in closing this last fund, it's 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 recruit. We're, we're doing some heavy recruiting right now. Um, it's it's building up the team. Um, fortunately, now I don't have to spend any time fundraising, which had like one hand tied by, behind my back. Candidly, I mean, I spent a lot of time with we were fundraising a lot in the last year, and and not having to do that means I get to think more about Cerebro, so the product won't lag as much as it has. And uh, and then team building, um, and then obviously I'm uh, for the LPs listening. Don't worry, we're still investing and still talking to founders. Um, but that's one area where we don't we don't have to proactively do it. We just uh, meet with great companies, reaching out, and it's it's still a great time to be investing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And you alluded to fundraising, which now I know you've raised multiple funds under the seven seven six umbrella, and typically with a VC that's raising a fund one or fund two, the Biggest focus is just getting the best LPs typically thought of as institutions, and then also just making sure that you can get any type of capital from anybody that's willing to write a check in the early days. In your case, you've identified an issue of not enough female allocators, to which, by the way, we have too. In fact, we just launched an initiative around bringing more female allocators to, uh, to the forefront. But in your case, you also have a mandate of what percentage of your fund you prefer to have backed by female allocators. Tell us a little bit about why that is so important to you. Setting out to start the firm, I realized, okay, I know how to build a venture fund and know how to build a tech startup. We get to, we have a blank canvas now to just do it exactly the way that we want to in a way that gives us, and I want to be clear, in a way that gives us greatest possible returns. Everything, everything we do, 2% program, our, our LP demographic goals. All of this is about outsized returns. That's it. First and foremost, we will, we know that this leads us to better performance. Now, why? And, and this is, so I'm sharing screen right now with our uh, demographic survey report. We don't uh, assume anything about our LPs, gender identity, that stuff. So, um, so we just ask, right? And again, this is the advantage of having Caitlin who just has done this her, her entire career. So yeah, so we said, RLP base is going to be a reflection of our society here in the U.S. because, one, they're going to be a community because they're actually going to use software, not too dissimilar from forum software you might be familiar with, to actually be a part of Cerebro, to be able to solicit sort of insights, opinions, to be able to have a real-time dialogue with us instead of just a quarterly investor update, but actually get updates in real time as we're thinking about stuff and seeing stuff. We want that community to not be an echo chamber. We know that's going to help us make better decisions. And also... This is long before people were asking about Russian oligarchs uh, on the cap table. We knew that this would be a strategic advantage because the best founders would love to make money for a bunch of people who aren't normally getting a seat at the table. And finance, <laughs> as you're aware, happens to be one where glaringly, I, it was only when we started deciding who we were going to reach out to that I realized, like, I've been around the block. Uh, we've had, had some great endowments, great funds, uh, made some good money for them. 
But only when we did this and I was sitting across from two other women that I was like, damn, you know, how many rooms have I been in where there's only dudes only? And, and we took, I mean, I took endowments off the list where I still politely met with them, but I said, you know, look, it's just, your team is just going to kill our numbers. It's not personal, but we, we just can't, right? These values are important to us. And so, yeah, so a majority of our LPs are women and, and we actually have a pretty good representation. I think, let's see, 11, 12, call it 12% are black. I think 13, 14% of the US population is like, we went out of our way. We're going to publish all of this. I, I should just tweet it. I'm just very, I want it to look beautiful and live on the website and I just need to get over myself. But like, we ask questions like this, like care of others. So 54% or excuse me, 40% of the total. So 47% of our total LPs, 54% of the ones who responded are responsible for the care of others, either part or full time. And again, this is stuff where it's like, okay, the people we're making money for are caretakers. That could be children. That could be family members. That could, right. These are, this is humanizing capital and in a world and differentiating it. and the world of Washington capital, where the best founders can pick from anybody. This gives us one more advantage because it, 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 it humanizes and it differentiates the capital. It, it gives more purpose to to what we do and why we do. We outperform on immigrants. You know, I love that um, versus the U.S. population. So, you know, twenty percent of those responded. Um, and it's just so anyway. This is all stuff we're going to publish. And for me, I realized even when we announced this last fundraise to be able to say that, like, I think it's two thirds of the institutions we make money for are like the foundation type institutional wealth. Is, is putting that money into supporting underserved communities. And, and I think a little more than half of those are BIPOC communities. And again, it's just one more thing. It'd be a reason founders want to take our money. And then, and then yeah, when, there's, when Russia declares war on Ukraine, our founders never have to worry like, geez, do you guys have oligarch money? No, <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> and, and that, right. I think, again, yes, the ultimate outcome of this is I want to help make, we all want to help make the careers of, let's say, women in institutional finance who are going to be able to say, yeah, I was in the first fund of 776. I was in the second fund of 776. Here are those returns, right? This fires us up even more because that unequivocal greatness is what helps break down barriers and, you know, make things a little bit more equitable. And I just, I like, I'm at a point in my career the whole catalyst for this was George Floyd and me realizing that I had a different responsibility now as a parent, especially the parent of a black daughter. And I was just like, you know what? I, I've, I've been really fortunate in my career. I have, in a manner of speaking, run out of fucks to give. And I have maybe 30, uh, I actually just tweeted this day, I'm about to be 39. And, and I just realized like, I've got like three, four decades, hopefully, God willing, of really great work where I'm motivated, I'm energized, I know what I'm doing, I can see the matrix. And I, I want my daughter to see that every day. And that's candidly, that's, that's why I do it. Did I, did I have that sense of purpose before? No, no. And even, even getting a front receipt to the, the shit that my wife has dealt with, it, it affected me. It, it certainly fired me up, but becoming a parent, man, I know it's cliche, but it absolutely changed that dynamic. And, and I just feel grateful that there's, there are folks who it's resonating with, whether it's folks on the team, whether it's LPs, whether it's founders, and I will do this the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm just excited as all heck to do it. All of these different things that you're doing all align to this organizational ethos and really reflect the values of you and the rest of the, the, the company. But 
ultimately, all of this does actually help, which you mentioned is returns and helping your founders and also brings these massive societal benefits if you're successful. I love a lot of the things that we've talked about. The, the one last thing that I do want to touch on is since you've been around and you've seen so many GPs come to market, you know, a lot of bigger funds have used scout models. You decided not to do that. In fact, you went and decided to seed managers to get started. And I was looking at the th first three funds that you seeded through the Titan program. And these are all people that come from non-traditional finance backgrounds. In fact, very unique. Again, it ties together with different people backing different type of founders. But it also speaks to the fact that, you know, these people have interesting backgrounds that present unique value add on the cap table. So in other words, they're not it's just not like go to market or it's not just, hey, I'm going to help you think about your next round of capital. Tell us about what you look for when you're seeding managers through this program. It is it is differentiation. And and imagine I'm going to stretch this metaphor as far as I can. The, you know, the Marvel Universe is a vast, 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 vast universe of superheroes. And we know what folks who have you know, deep startup experience, experience look like because, the, I mean, in the last decade, we've seen a ton of them emerge, and it's great. We need even more. We know what the folks who are deep on the finance look like. That was sort of the previous generation. We do have one titan we haven't announced yet who does have a finance background, but we wanted a really broad range because part of this is like, let's just see what happens. But the, the common thread here, you know, between the three we've announced, MKBHD, so Marquez Brownlee, who um, I'd say safely the, the world's leading design and technology influencer, you know, creator on YouTube. If there is a beautiful product, hardware, software, whatever design thing, his endorsement of it is just game over like that that cosign means i don't even know what to compare it to but he he's such a thought leader massive community massive distribution um allison felix uh i think the most decorated u.s track and field uh i'm track and field runner uh, olympian um you know she had her own struggles with nike when she got pregnant and they decided to cut her loose um and and is you know absolutely iconic has been investing with her brother quietly for the last few years and uh, and then finally, so Cleo Abram, she's been creating these really, really brilliant videos explaining anything. Um, she has a tremendous curiosity and a tremendous intellect and just great storyteller. Um, millions of followers on TikTok. She was at Vox. She just went solo. Sort of, I think she could be the video version of um, not boring, if I can really put this in inside baseball terms. And so all of them, what they share, the common thread is... What I describe is some part reputation slash distribution, which is either they have millions of followers and audience and community. We know the power of distribution. If, I mean, if, if my tweet can help a company raise a Series A, like Marquez Brownlee co-signing the right company is just so legitimizing, gets so many downloads, creates so many sales, et cetera. Same thing with Clio. They have millions of fans, all that. And there's a brand dynamic. Allison may not have the largest Twitter following or Instagram following, although it's big, um, but her cosign speaks volumes to tons of people and can get traditional press and cosigns that, again, sort of win in this column of like brand reputation and distribution. So they have to have exceptional. And the other side is like an exceptional sort of operational ability. And that's not go to market in the tech sense, but it's 
if you need to call this person up and get them on the phone for 20 minutes to ask them stuff, is there a thing they can help you with that few other people in the world can? And, and if we hit those two things for all these Titans, I think that's the core. I think that's what it takes to basically get into any hot deal you want. And this is the other part. Okay. So, and I saw this firsthand as, you know, I was, I was giving Serena a little, a little advice. We, we keep it very church and state, but four or five years ago when we were talking, I was like, baby, you gotta, you gotta be doing investing more. Like, let me, I'll help you get some pieces in place because any hot company in the world, again, same criteria. She's my wife, so I'm very biased, but like those same criteria, obviously those boxes get checked double. Then here's the hack. Okay. All of these emerging managers are small check sizes. Their funds are under $10 million. So the folks who need to lead, like me, these other top firms, all they need to know is that they're open for business. That's what I told Serena. I was like, as long as the top 10 firms know that you're investing, they all want to be able to brag that they can get an intro to you to potentially get you on the cap table. Same thing with these Titans. As long as the sort of best firms know that they're open for business and we can help them with that, they can help themselves with that, they're going to get the cream of the crop deal flow that automatically makes their process so much more likely to be successful because they will see the best companies. They'll be able to get into those companies because of those two criteria I said. And again, these are sub, in almost all cases, they can raise as much as they want, right? They can raise, they can keep 500K, that's it. They can do, we have a couple that are raising like 10 million. Those funds, as you know, are way easier to return in big multiples so long as you can get into the very best companies. And they're, they're, the, 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 this is, I hope this is going to just seem really obvious in a few years because I mean, I ran it through my own filters now for a number of years, just trying to think through what could mess this up. And I, I really, I'm excited by what's to come. They've obviously got a lot more to do, but it's especially appealing because in an environment like we're in right now, I don't think I could in good conscience launch a scout program because, and because think of the audacity I'll pick on Sequoia, Sequoia scouts. I remember hearing about Sequoia scouts 10 years ago. Kids would, they'd strut into Y Combinator. They'd say, hey, you know what? I'm a Sequoia scout. It was a flex, right? Who, who knows what startup they started, but they're like, I'm a Sequoia scout. It's great flex. Why is it a flex? Because the Sequoia brand meant something to their peers enough that Sequoia bestowed, here's a token of our brand. You may flaunt it as a scout and pay us the, <laughs> pay, pay us the toll for <laughs> doing so and write checks on our behalf. In 2022, the audacity of saying, you can be a 776 scout, Marquez. We have deigned you worthy of investing our money, right? It's preposterous, especially when he's already doing deals. When, again, the distribution of one genuine powerful post from him actually means more than 99.99, actually probably 100% of institutional VCs, right? Because he's, he's built a reputation and a community and a trust and an expertise that none of us have, none of us can. And, and I, I like the fact that this is saying the better model is actually the one that is just so audacious as to say, you know what, just set up your own fund. The rest of the stuff, you know, can be handled. Series is the, the start of actually doing all that stuff. But, uh, but then let's plug you into the Cerebro network. We get, we get, I want the data. I want to learn the companies you're excited about. That happens seamlessly through software. And, uh, and let's see what y'all can do with it. So I, I, again, we try to look at it from first principles in the state of the market as it is right now. And this just felt like the best way to make sure that we have access into an even broader range of all the best companies. And then more importantly, the, the data and insights really 
for anyone else. I mean, it's a, a really exciting view on VC and where the future is because I look at these community rounds that are done and we run across so many sub $10 million funds, and, you know, people that are at 10 million, you know, folks like Packy and Turner Novak, and they actually can alter outcomes with what they do. You know, Packy writes a great, you know, newsletter and he highlights the companies and they get a lot of lift from those things. And most of them are small enough where they're not actually pushing anybody else off the cap table. It's low friction, high, high value checks, and it's scalable checks, right? So for ex- scalable in, in the sense that when you put in, let's say a 50 or $100,000 check into a company, one tweet is already going to add more value than, or you know, one article that Packy writes is going to add more value than maybe an institutional LP or institutional VC that puts a million in that seed round. Totally agree. And that, again, and, and what could stop that? The the power of ownership, and maybe this is almost like a this is a microcosm of what's happening in crypto and Web three, but but having individuals like a Packy motivated, aligned, having skin in the game, it 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 makes everything matter more. Even the article they write, it's getting read from followers who care about his opinion, who know that he's invested in it, and that's not a that's not a downside. Right. There's a historical view of this stuff where it's like, no, it's got to be church and state kings. But the reality is what people actually want, what the market is asking for is just transparency. As long as you keep it 100 and say, yeah, this this company I'm running about, I liked it so much that I put money into it. Some portion of it is my own money. And I want you to know about it. Well, it turns out this like, I mean, half two thirds of my content on social media for the last 10 years has been a version of this. And when you have people who are actually great at content creation, which I'm not, who have built a community around specific expertise and storytelling, which I have not, they will do it 10 times better. And to your point, it's a frictionless, low size, uh, but high impact check. What founder, why, why would a founder not take that? And I couldn't answer it. So I was like, okay, well, then it makes sense to do this Titans program and see what, see what comes of it. But I... And I, and I don't want to, hopefully I don't get on a Sequoia list because of the impression, <laughs> but, uh, but I think it was clearly the right idea at that time. It's just, because it's been wildly successful, at least the lore is it's been wildly successful. I'm sure it has. But now in 2022, if you're building it from, from scratch, this is how you do it. I still use that voice though, when we talk to our Titans. I love the voice. I love the voice. And <laughs> all of this makes sense. And I, and I, I don't think things are going to go back to the way they used to be. And, and I hope not. And I just can't see why not, because from a first principles perspective, it's what founders want. Yes. It's what we wanted, right? And that's where we derive the most value. And so before we actually got on this podcast and started recording, one of the things I mentioned to you is that what really resonates when I have these conversations and for our audience is people that don't necessarily ascribe to that normal Silicon Valley echo chamber. And you said, no problem. <laughs> and this conversation <laughs> has been illuminating and certainly aligns with a new way to do things. And this has been great. I want to leave you with one question. Um, and this is just more personal. Given all those experiences going from Pizza Hut to Reddit to Initialize, now 776, what's the most impactful piece of advice that you've ever received from somebody that really kind of defines how you think about the world? 
the best advice I've actually gotten from, there have been some inadvertent advice. Like I got advice that was actually terrible <laughs> that I would never do again, but I'll give you, I want to give you the positive one, which is not going to help people interested in business. But um, I had a brief meeting with the president of United States, President Obama. And, um, and I was like, okay, I got one question. What am I going to ask? And I was like, well, you know, Mr. President, you've got two daughters. I, I think Olympia was probably just like a year old. I was like, look, I got a newborn daughter. What advice do you have for me? And he said, well, Alexis, the advice I'm going to give you about being a father to a daughter is make sure you treat their mother the way that you want them to treat men or to have men treat them. Make sure, because they see everything. Make sure the way that you live your life outside the house, as well as inside the house, lines up. Because that is what they're going to come to expect from any man they meet. <laughs> and I, he said it even more eloquently than I did, but I couldn't, I couldn't resist. But, but that, that mindset definitely loomed. And um, again, I know it's cliche. I know it's like, oh, here's another dude who started to care about the world because he had a kid, especially a daughter, especially a black daughter. But that's the honest to God truth. And, and I just, it, as a lens through any of the professional stuff that I do. I mean, it's, it's a very clear crystallizing lens. And even when I get myself wrapped up about like a tweet, you know, I go off on Twitter. I get wrapped up about just something at work. I try to ground myself in the fact that really the only person who matters only at the end of the day, I'm, I'm doing this to impress one little person, hopefully more down the road. Um, and it's for her. And, and so let me make sure that my decisions other than always the right ones. Let me make sure that I've got some some good receipts uh, to show her when she's looking over about what how how her papa moved through the world and what he did, and um, and I think so. I guess my advice is not have a kid, <laughs> although when the time's right, everyone listening should. Um, but you know what? Okay, I can give something that's more practical too. the The first decade, I even looking back now, the first decade of my life, I had so much limitless energy and boundless. I mean, just boundless energy. And I now understand what my dad was talking about when he was like, just you wait. <laughs> Cause I thought I'm mean, going to run at 11, but I still like just physically, it's just not the same as back then. And there is this tremendous gift to just the right amount of ignorance. Um, I do think, you know, with experience, which is actually valuable and I think really undervalued in, in, the valley with experience, you can make smarter decisions faster, saving time. But there's some cost savings. But, but to be young and naive and really have to think about things from first principles because you really don't even know why, right? To have that childlike state of mind of just asking why because you're an outsider and you're learning. I find myself so energized, whether it's by folks on the team, whether it's by founders we back who have this mindset. And it's not just because they're young, but it's it's such an amazing time, and so. Because I know a lot of these listeners are are in the space of of venture, you know, they're LPs, they're they're GPs, or they're at venture firms. I really don't think venture is immune to any of the things we see across any other industries. And what would we tell a founder if they wanted to disrupt a coffee business or any other thing? We would say like, go, start building, start creating. And I, I think capital allocation is the least one of the least sexy things you could get excited about. But as I know, you know, this space, once you get into it, 
it actually has an absurd amount of impact on the world, like an absurd amount, like the, the levers that get pulled, the ripple effect, the butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it from how capital moves around is actually massive. And that is something I did not appreciate until really pretty darn recently. And, uh, and so there's, there's endless ways to improve it. There are endless ways to just even make more money in it, right? There's just endless ways to, to kick down doors and, and really think about things from first principles. And so I, I celebrate the fact there are more investors than ever. I love the fact that we're creating competition for ourselves. I did, I did get a text from another, you know, VC who was like, dude, do you really want to be funding other like venture? Like you're funding your competition. And I'm like, bro, if you are afraid of competition, like you're in the wrong line of work. Like you should be going out every day to try to create competitors. Be so great that people are inspired to say, I want to be like that. I want to be better than that one day. And, and I think that's a mindset that to me, it's like blood in the water. Like that is so exciting because if, if the mindset is so reluctant, uh, it means that there's tremendous opportunity for new folks taking new approaches. And I can't wait to see it. I really can't wait. I couldn't agree more. And it goes away from a lot of that. What you heard from your, your friend is just the conventional way of how VCs used to think. And I, I love the new guard. I've been so excited about covering this new guard for now 12 years. Dude, you were for front lines, Samir. Do people listening realize this? How front lines of this stuff you were yeah. at First Republic? Are we okay? They got to know. They should know. It was really early days. And, and it's changed so much. And it's just, it's just been such an inspiring part of the segment that, you know, I've been able to be front sort of the, in the passenger seat for so long and, you know, working with folks like yourself now, it's exciting to see what the future is. I mean, this has been a really fun conversation. And by the way, that was a really good Obama impression. Okay? I, I stumbled. I'm it was really pretty good. Actually. I stumbled on it, but okay. <laughs> Thanks. I, um, I'm excited to see the growth of 776. Congrats on all the, the great work. I know it's early. But you guys have made so much impact and really appreciate you being on. Thank you, Samir. This was great. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Alexis. To learn more about him or 776, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.